and welcome to episode 131 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Emma Doble, Summer, Matt Osborne, Jessica Macchiarelli, Lindsay B, Alison C, Beardy Man 1905, Josephine Oman, Renee Lindsay, Shroom Titty. <laughs> Titty's such a great word. <laughs> Zoe Chambers Ward Angel Mia Feemster Lucy Baker Rita Roach Shannon Provost Ken Latham Eric Ringer Chloe Tupper Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We love you. We appreciate you every day. And our film review this week. Our film review is Alien. Alien was released in 1979. It has 8.4 out of 10 on IMDb. And 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Please. The crew of a spacecraft, Nostromo, intercept a distress signal from a planet and set out to investigate it. However, to their horror, they are attacked by an alien which later invades their ship. Before we start, I've never seen this film before. I know it's shocked. Many people, when I posted that I'd never seen it before, but I'd never seen it before. This is my very first time watching it, and I didn't like it. And if you listen really closely, you can hear Sinead from The Poisoner's Cabinet screaming, because this is her favourite film. Now, I'm only joking, I loved it. What were your <laughs> thoughts on this film? You had me going, and I was like, what? I'm sure you said that you liked it at the end of the film. <laughs> I think we should do your thoughts because I've seen this multiple times. You're the one that's seen it first. So what are your thoughts on the film? I was really pleasantly surprised because I I knew it was a classic. I'd seen the chest bursting scene. I hadn't seen any of the rest of the film, like at all. Didn't know anything about it other than the fact that it's a big scary fucking alien, right? Didn't know there was a cat involved. That was a very welcome surprise. Very happy with that. And I thought before we watched it that I was going to end up saying, this is a really good film for its time constantly throughout this review but it's just a really good film even now I was gripped watching it it was really intense I thought it was amazing I I can see why it was just a wonder when it came out like they came out in 1979 and there are brief interludes where the graphics look like they're from 1979 right but only when you see the spacecraft moving around that's it or the robot made of spaghetti and milk. But even <laughs> that turn of events blew my mind. Yeah. So like, I, I just can't, I can't believe I've never seen this film. I don't know how I've never seen it. How have I gone 31 years of my life without seeing this film? I do feel like it's something that your brothers would have shown you when you were about five. So I am surprised you haven't seen it. Maybe I have seen it. I just blacked it out. because, And that's where my fear of aliens stems from. I just, I thought like, it was so clever because it is a masterclass in working with what you've got. It was really subtle. You didn't really see that much of the alien. And the bits that you did see were fucking focused on how scary its big head was. Which was very alarming. And uh, yeah, it was it like it was dark. And it used, like as in physically dark. And it used that darkness to its advantage. It was like gritty. And there was no explanation to it you know the way with some um sci-fi films they try and explain where they are in relation to earth in the modern day they didn't try and do that they were just like we're in space move on that's it this is what's happening let's go with it i just thought it was brilliant 
I love this film. I controversially think actually think it's better than the sequel, which is not a widely perceived train of thought, but I I just prefer the way that this is done. The sequel is much more of an action film in my opinion, whereas this is plays up the tension and the horror aspect of it much more and I, I prefer this only just but I do prefer it to the sequel. I I agree with everything you say. It's really well done. It holds up really well. Even the practical effects where they do get a little bit of their time don't really take away from the film. They just add a level of amusement perhaps. <laughs> No, they don't. And I, I read afterwards, because I actually looked up this film afterwards, because I just was so interested. And, and as I was watching, I was like, oh, you know, Independence Day borrows really heavily from that bit. And like Pitch Black borrows really heavily from this bit, you know. And he wanted to create a haunted house movie in space. And that's exactly what he does. Like, that is it. It is. It's a haunted house movie in space with a big fucking grizzly alien. For those uh, movie nerds out there that are wondering, we watched the 1979 theatrical cut rather than the 2003 director's cut, just in case you were wondering. I'm sure lots of people were wondering. Um, and I will say that I found it very, it was very welcome to watch a film where the female protagonists weren't 80s bombshells. And I said this to you during it, they weren't like, they weren't kind of portrayed in this highly sexualized way there's obviously that bit at the end where Ripley's randomly in her underwear in her very small knickers which I don't think would have been very comfortable in space or otherwise but you know you've got these really strong women in it and I thought wow this is amazing not made up you know they are strong women in positions of power I was I was here for it and obviously like you said if they just listened to her from the very beginning they wouldn't have had this problem just listen to her follow the rules that's it, and it would have been fine. I also like that it promotes the idea that non-morons survive as well. <laughs> yeah, if you're not an idiot and you and you follow the rules that are laid out for a reason when you're, you know, doing space commerce, then you will survive, okay? And you will survive well. I just thought, wow, I can't believe it's it's been... I have not seen this film. Like, I'm excited to watch the rest of them. I want to watch Aliens. I want to go back now and watch, like, Predator so I can watch Aliens versus Predator. I have actually seen Predator. That's one of them that I've seen. And the one where they're in the city as well. Were you about seven when you watched that? <laughs> I actually think I was quite young yeah, when I saw it. Because I remember just being like, oh my God, this invisible creature can come and get me at any point. <laughs> so what would you give it out of five stars? Oh, five out of five. It has to be. Yeah, It is for me too. If you haven't seen this film, definitely go and watch it. It's, it won't be ruined for you by the pop culture references to it I because I found that with The Shining that I was a bit like oh because I knew exactly what was going to happen even though I'd never seen the film um, and also if you're concerned about the cat don't worry about it the cat doesn't die I was really concerned that the cat was going to die and I was I was preemptively upset for the death of the cat no the cat doesn't die amazing great film loved it I just was enthralled by it which brings us to our story this week must be ghosts. We are going to be talking today about the Rendlesham Forest incident. What do you know about the Rendlesham Forest? The Rendlesham. Rend. Why is that so hard to say? Rendlesham Forest incident. I know very little because I started to look it up for an episode, and then you said that we didn't want to do it, so I didn't look any further, which is quite handy because we're now doing it, and I don't know anything, so everything you're going to tell me is new. All I know is it is the UK's equivalent of Area Fifty One, as far as I know. No, not Area Fifty One, Roswell, whatever. I didn't want to do it at the time because I was so off aliens. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this because it's really going to scare me. And guess what? It did. <laughs> this 
research blew my mind in so many different ways. And I am going to say before we start that I there are I mean, I, I took the research from a million different sources. I would recommend if you're interested in this story to go and look at the sources in the episode in the show notes because I've kind of said exactly what each link is. So whether it's an analysis of what happened or just a story about what happened, there's so much to this story that I couldn't fit it all into one episode. It would end up being hours long. And I didn't want to do a two-parter on it because alien episodes aren't the most popular. So that's why we want to do them every so often. So if you're listening to this story and you're a buff on this story and you think, oh, you've missed out on that bit. I had to generalize some of it. I just had to because there was no way to get through it otherwise. Are you ready? Yeah, because it's aliens. It was late December 1980, and Vince Thurkettle was out chopping wood in the cold, crisp morning air. A car was snaking its way towards him along the country road, and he watched as it pulled up next to him. Two men in suits exited the car. They were young, in their thirties, and were both well-spoken Englishmen. Do you mind if we asked you some questions about your whereabouts last night? Vince was confused. Were they policemen or journalists or what? And what happened last night to warrant their visit? Eventually they told him that they were investigating reports of some lights in the sky and after asking him 20 or so polite but firm questions, they got into their car and left. Vince never knew who they were at the time and he did not know what they were referring to. It would not be until three years later that the story of the Rendlesham Forest incident would make international news. The Cold War was raging, and the US Air Force were stationed at two old Royal Air Force bases in the east of England, RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge. The air bases were six miles apart, and were divided by the Rendlesham Forest. Tensions were reaching breaking point among the world superpowers, and the US strategy was to outstripe the Soviet Union by massively investing in the arms race, and thus break the back of the Soviet economy. This was supported by the British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, and resulted in the stationing of US airmen on British airfields, a closer vantage point to Soviet airspace. It was approximately midnight, on the 26th of December, when the series of events began. The night was calm at RAF Bentwaters. The night sentries were on their guard, looking out over the sprawling coniferous forest. Steve Longero was on foot patrol, around the base's numerous weapons lockers when the sirens began. The siren and the accompanied sound of sentries running to their combat positions meant only one thing there was something in the air. Longero ran to his position at the perimeter fence of the base. He stood, weapon raised, sirens blaring around him, and waited. He peered into the forest and above it, and he had the slow, dawning realisation that something wasn't quite right. The forest was glowing red, and in the glow he saw the objects. Strange, colourful orbs were darting in and out of the trees at a speed which didn't seem possible. He glanced at the men on either side of him, worried that he was somehow imagining things, but the look on their faces told him that he wasn't. This was real. 
The forest was glowing red and strange orbs were dancing in and out of the trees. The orbs began to move more erratically and sporadically collided with a shower of sparks and a metallic twang. The alarm siren stopped. Then the movements changed. The orbs would rise above the tree line and hover above it, silent and still, almost as though they were observing the men and the airbase. There was a distinct feeling of sentience to the objects that was becoming more and more alarming. The crackle of static broke through the silence, as the man next to Longero radioed to control to see if they also had a visual on these objects. They did. They were watching the objects with their own eyes, but the objects showed up on none of their surveillance tech. There was no evidence on them on radar, and they emitted no radio communication. The order was given for the men to observe, but not engage. And so that was what they did. They watched and waited, and each formed their own ideas of what they were seeing in their heads. Across the forest at RAF Woodbridge, an investigation also began. At 3am, a number of patrolmen reported that something was descending into the trees, something that was bright and silent. Colonel Charles Holt organised a patrol to go into the woods and investigate. Sergeant Jim Penniston, Airmen First Class John Burroughs and Ed Cabinsag. These four personnel go on to be the key eyewitnesses to what happened in the Rendlesham Forest over these nights. The team of three headed deeper into the forest, in constant radio contact with Colonel Holt, and reported that the forest was getting hotter and hotter. They also reported hearing a humming noise, which seemed to be getting louder. Holt waited with his radio in his hand for updates from the men. It was a tense wait. There was a chance that this could have been an enemy craft, and Holt wasn't taking any chances. The radio crackled to life and Penniston's voice came through, audibly strained even through the airwaves. Colonel, the animals on the farms have gone crazy. We thought it was people screaming, but it's not. It's the animals. Something is wrong. The three continued deeper into the forest and then they saw it. Some sort of aircraft was hovering in a clearing in front of them. They had never seen a craft like it and the craft bore no discernible insignia from any air force. It was triangular, and seemed to be covered in various lights of blue and red. It hovered above the ground, and produced a mist that swirled around it. There was no evidence of any propulsion system, or clear mechanism by which the craft was hovering. There was no sound of an engine roaring, and the external structure seemed to be made from one piece of some sort of metal. The craft seemed to have strange symbols etched onto the outside of it. Penniston stepped forward and slowly approached it. He touched the craft, feeling its polished surface and the symbols that were engraved into it. The symbols suddenly began to glow and lit up to a blinding illumination. Penniston saw a series of ones and zeros and then the glowing stopped. Penniston and his patrol frantically took out their notepads and wrote notes, drew pictures 
and later when he returned home, Penniston wrote down the series of ones and zeros that he had seen. After approximately 40 minutes, the craft suddenly took off through the trees and the men returned to the base to describe what happened to Colonel Holt. Holt called the police to report the incident as per protocol and the local police arrived at 4am and saw no craft or strange lights save for the light of a lighthouse nearby on the coast. As soon as dawn broke, another group of airmen were dispatched and reported seeing three strange indentations in a triangular shape, scorch marks on the ground and scorch marks in the trees in the clearing that the patrol alleged they witnessed the craft. More sentries reported witnessing lights ducking and weaving in and out of the forest and Holt decided that he needed to conduct his own research. He quietly gathered a group of men and made his way into the clearing to investigate the area. He carried a Geiger counter and the men carried flashlights. And crucially, Holt recorded the entire expedition on a dictaphone. Holt had recorded strange radiation readings and witnessed scorch marks and broken branches where the craft had allegedly landed. He was then warned of a red light approaching at speed. He reported that the object stopped and winked down at the men like an eye and then exploded into five lights which moved independently of each other. The men returned to the safety of the base and there were more reports of red lights weaving in and around the base and occasionally projecting a beam onto the weapons lockers that dotted the area. Eventually, the lights shot back towards the sea, and they weren't seen again. Holt wrote down everything that happened in a memo that he signed and sent to his superiors, and that memo still exists. It is now kept in the National Archives in Kew in London and it reads as follows. Early in the morning of 27th of December 1980, approximately 3am, two USAF security police patrolmen saw unusual lights outside the back gate at RAF Woodbridge. Thinking an aircraft might have crashed or been forced down, they called for permission to go outside the gate to investigate. The on-duty flight chief responded and allowed three patrolmen to proceed on foot. The individuals reported seeing a strange glowing object in the forest. The object was described as being metallic in appearance and triangular in shape, approximately two to three metres across the base and approximately two metres high. It illuminated the entire forest with a white light. The object itself had a pulsing red light on top and a bank of blue lights underneath. The object was hovering or on legs. As the patrolmen approached the object, it manoeuvred through the trees and disappeared. At this time, the animals on a nearby farm went into a frenzy. The object was briefly sighted approximately an hour later near the back gate. 
The next day, three depressions 1.5 inches deep and 7 inches in diameter were found where the object had been sighted on the ground. The following night, the 29th of December 1980, the area was checked for radiation. Beta-gamma readings were recorded, with peak readings in the three depressions and near the centre of the triangle formed by the depressions. A nearby tree had moderate readings on the side of the tree toward the depressions. Later in the night, a red sun-like light was seen through the trees. It moved about and pulsed. At one point, it appeared to throw off glowing particles and then broke into five separate white objects and then disappeared. Immediately thereafter, three star-like objects were noticed in the sky, two objects to the north and one to the south, all of which were about 10 degrees off the horizon. The objects moved rapidly in sharp, angular movements and displayed red, green and blue lights. The objects to the north appeared to be elliptical through an 8 to 12 power lens. They then turned to full circles. The objects to the north remained in the sky for an hour or more. The object to the south was visible for two or three hours and beamed down a stream of light from time to time. Numerous individuals, including the undersigned, witnessed the activities in paragraphs 2 and 3. Signed, Charles I. Holt, Lieutenant Colonel, USAF, Deputy Base Commander. The weirdness of this case doesn't end there. Because it wasn't the first UFO incident of the Rendlesham Forest. In 1956, the radars at RAF Bentwaters picked up on something strange. The operators reported that they were watching several objects hurtling across the sea towards them at what seemed to be thousands of miles an hour. At the same time, a transport aircraft that was coming into land had to make an emergency ascent as a white light shot in front of the craft at lightning speed, startling the pilot and causing him to pull up. Another base, 60 miles north, confirmed that they too were tracking the unidentified objects streaking across the sea, and their patrolmen physically saw groups of red and green lights moving at incredible speeds out at sea. Fighter jets were scrambled to intercept the objects and had to disengage as their flight equipment malfunctioned in the air. They reported being chased and outpaced by the objects and that they displayed unbelievable manoeuvrability in the air. So one would think that almost 25 years later, a similar report would warrant a serious investigation. Steve Longero, the first century we came across in this story, claimed that him and the other personnel were forced to sign declarations that they would not discuss the events of that night with anyone. Sergeant Jim Penniston, Airman First Class John Burroughs and Ed Cabasag claimed that they were told in the investigation that, and I quote, bullets were cheap and a surefire way to maintain their silence. During the investigation and the interviews, one of the airmen claimed that he was summoned to an interview at a farmhouse just outside of the airbase. He thought this was strange, as the interviews had been taking place on site, but he complied and attended nonetheless. He met with two men in suits at the farmhouse, and they sat and chatted about the incident. But he realised that the men were strange. They had strange, what he described as doll-like eyes, and seemed to have odd mannerisms. 
He left as soon as he could and reported to his superior that the meeting had been an odd one. But his superior had no record of any meeting that was meant to take place, and no one could explain who these men were. Allegedly, when they returned to the farmhouse, it was a dilapidated wreck, and not the cosy homestead it had been hours before. The airman was naturally completely traumatised by the incident and began therapy soon afterwards. So what happened in those nights at the Rendlesham Forest? There are those who believe that this may just be the most compelling close encounter on record, or rather not on record, and many refer to it as the UK Roswell. There are also those who believe that this is the result of a series of misidentifications and others who claim it was an outright hoax. We'll explore the theories in more detail as we go on, but it's interesting to note that there are still, to this day, some pretty interesting sightings and videos of strange lights above the Rendlesham Forest. And you might remember that during this story, Peniston claimed that he saw a series of ones and zeros when he touched the aircraft. He didn't suffer any injuries or any long-lasting damage when he touched the craft, but he was diagnosed with PTSD after the events. And if you remember, he scribbled down everything that he saw in his head and kept it in a notepad. He had no idea what binary code was, and only learned of its existence later, and realised that that was what he had seen. And he also realised that if this was legitimately binary code, it might have some sort of message. And it did. The binary code that Peniston had written down contained coordinates for well-known world heritage sites like Stonehenge and the Pyramids, and stated that the craft came from the year 8100 and travelled back in time, and it was human, not extraterrestrial. My mind is in a state of flux. (laughs) So what are your thoughts so far? We'll get to the theories in a second, and I have a number of theories for you. But what are your thoughts so far? I don't know, to be truthfully honest with you. I was all down for it being aliens. I didn't realise there was so many, like there was two two big incidents and loads of extra sightings. I just thought it was a one-off thing. I don't know what to make of that last thing that you read. I just blow my mind. So there were legitimately multiple people on both bases that witnessed lights. That is, you know, testified that happened. Any other thoughts about it before we go into our theories? I want, I thought maybe this might be the case where some like British soldiers said that they were playing tricks on the Americans. I read something about there was some British soldiers playing tricks on the Americans, but it feels quite elaborate. We'll get to that. That's one of the theories. Oh, okay. So theory number one, it is just a case of mistaken identity. At the time of the alleged sightings, there were approximately 250 sightings across the UK that were caused by both meteor showers and also a Soviet rocket had broken up and re-entered airspace. No, because they were like in the woods, weren't they? Some of the lights were in the woods. You wouldn't see a meteor shower in the woods with you. <laughs> it's already burnt up by that point. No, but I do think it's an just an interesting 
caveat to this story that at the same time there was genuinely a meteor shower where like lots of people I think I think it was around 250 people contacted their local authorities to say oh I've just seen something crashing out of the sky and it turned out to be just be this really bright meteor shower and at the same time there was a Soviet rocket that had broken up and re-entered the atmosphere so it's just an interesting side note no I don't think it is the theory to be honest no neither do I Next one. I think there's too much, too much, like you said, happened in the forest for it to be mistaken meteors. Theory number two. It was some sort of never before seen military tech. Now, there were rumours that at the time, despite what the British government said, nuclear weapons were being housed in these airspaces. And the whatever these lights were seemed to be homing in on the weapons lockers that were on these airspaces. So some people thought that it might be never before seen military tech. I like this idea apart from the idea of it being British tech, because if 80s action movies have taught me anything, America has the best military tech. That's very true. So if it's not theirs, whose is it? It's an interesting theory because I genuinely do believe and I'm not this isn't like a conspiracy theory tinfoil hat thing that there is a huge amount of military tech that just the general public don't know about. And there probably is all sorts of stuff in airspace, flying weapons or surveillance vehicles that we don't know about. However, I think if there was military tech of this level that was completely silent, that was, it would, and that military tech was available 40 years ago, by now it would have leaked into commercial items at this point. At, and and maybe not in a very obvious way, but we would see elements of that. Yeah, I also feel that, you know, if this this secret tech doesn't stay secret forever, and we are 40 years down the line now, right? Yeah. So I feel like someone would have gone, well, actually, <laughs> I worked on the base back then, and then we had this thing that we just used to bop around in. Yeah, a little hoverboard or whatever it yeah. was. I actually, to be honest, I don't agree with this one either. Whoa. I know, I think it's too much. It's too easy when we hear stories like this to say it's just secret military tech. I just don't think it is. I do think a lot of UF, modern day UFO, UFO sightings are though. Yeah, definitely. I think there's all sorts of mad shit in the sky that the that different militaries from around the world have created. I'd say there's lots of it that would probably blow our minds if we knew the half of what the military has. I also think that uh, 90% of the time that we see jets on military training, they've actually been scrambled and they just haven't told us. Do you think? Yeah. So theory number three, I mentioned very briefly the lighthouse. This is one of the most widely believed theories was that there was a nearby lighthouse and it is claimed that this was the source of the lights. Some personnel who witnessed the phenomena have testified that they were completely unaware of the fact that there was a lighthouse nearby. In fact, one of the patrol team, it was his first time ever in the woods in the darkness. He had never been outside of the base at night time. The lighthouse was directly in their line of sight and rotated at five second intervals, which could have accounted for the flickering lights. Yes, I feel like there's a a stronger possibility for this one than the other two. However, I do have to wonder that there's not someone on the base at this point going, guys, you know, there's a lighthouse over there, right? Yeah, and I, I lean more towards this one, but I find it really hard to believe that two military bases of hundreds of people that nobody said, anybody seen a lighthouse before? 
even if none of them knew the lighthouse was there, you'd maybe you'd think we're close to the coast. Is there a possibility that there's a lighthouse? Can we radio somebody and find out if there's a lighthouse nearby? That might solve all our problems. I'm going to say something now that comes with no factual evidence whatsoever. But I'm just guessing that if you are a military operation and you have a base, someone on your base will have studied the maps of the of the surrounding area. But in case you have to use all the military stuff and you've got to get out of there. Or you just need to do a quick quick recce find out where the nearest co-op is so that if somebody wants a midnight snack you can get a midnight snack i agree i could see that i could see this being the reason if they were like if it was a squad of completely new people that hadn't been there before but i feel like if that was the case and they came back someone would have gone guys there's there's a lighthouse over there it does this all the time that's a really interesting thing because actually the vast majority of the personnel on the base were new and they were between the ages of 19 and i think 21 but didn't someone senior write up a report about this? Yes, so Colonel Holt, <laughs> and we will get to him in a few minutes. Um, but yeah, so I, I lean more towards the lighthouse, but I do also find it difficult to believe that, what, like I said, all these people on military bases just didn't cop that it was a lighthouse. Theory number five. No, number four. Theory number four. It was rabbits. That's not a joke. That's a theory. Has this got anything to do with the fact that it is relatively close to a nuclear power station or the rabbits for nuclear? Nuclear rabbits that were giant and glowing. No. So if you remember at the beginning of the story, I mentioned a man called Vince Thurkettle. Now, he is actually a really important witness in this story because he genuinely was approached by two men in suits and he has been interviewed numerous times and asked, did he think it was the men in black? And he always like laughs and he's like, no, it was a couple of journalists at, at the very most. Everybody needs to calm down. But he said that he went to the crash site the next day, the alleged crash site, and that the digging, the, the scorch marks, they were actually the marks that are left on trees by fellers when they're trying to signify that a tree needs to come down. And the marks on the ground, those indentations, he was like, there were rabbit tracks. There were scratchings of rabbits. I've been in this forest for years and I can tell you none of the marks the scorch marks, the trees being like branches being broken, whatever. None of that was out of the ordinary for what is ordinarily in that particular space. That seems like a very logical explanation for those physical phenomena the following day. What it doesn't explain is the lights, unless you're telling me they're glowing rabbits. Or those particular rabbits in the Rendlesham Forest, because it's near a nuclear station, have evolved to a point where they've built their own craft to fly around in the forest in the middle of the night. That's actually what I'm saying. I mean, you've seen the fish in The Simpsons, so you know what happens. I do know what happens. Three-eyed glowing rabbits. That's obviously the next step. Theory number five. It was lies. Well, sort of. Because according to official sources, the incident was briefly investigated, but two weeks after the initial report, and it was almost immediately deemed as a case of misidentification, Colonel Holt signed an affidavit stating that what he saw was extraterrestrial, and the man leading the investigation said the following, and I quote, Colonel Holt can believe as he wishes. I've already disputed to some degree what he reported. However, he should be ashamed and embarrassed by his allegation that this country and England both conspired to deceive their citizens over this issue. He knows better. Peniston's original statement as provided to Colonel Holt and subsequently sent to his superiors does not match what is stated in the legend as we know it now. Originally, he never claimed to have touched the craft. He never said anything about binary code and he stated that he couldn't even get to within 50 feet of it. He was also the only person to report seeing a craft. 
But as the story has progressed over the years, he has added to it more and more as time has gone on. Now, Colonel Holt, I genuinely think really believes that he saw something extraterrestrial. And I genuinely believe that he saw something, lights, whatever, whether it was a natural phenomenon, whatever it was. Peniston is a different matter. Because he has changed his story and added to his story multiple times over the years. Again, that might account for some of the stuff. And actually, that's the most hard to believe, that binary code stuff is the bit where I was just like, what? Like, that's bizarre. But it doesn't change the fact that there's lights. It still doesn't rule out the lights for me. So that we're still talking about something that's a bit weird. Yes, but I think the kind of extent of this legend has been greatly exaggerated. And people have held on to the Peniston story as the true story because it's just more interesting, isn't it? And I, in the link to this episode or in the description of this episode, there is a link to an interview with Peniston where he talks about the binary code and what happened. And to be really honest, like I, I, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a body language expert, but he just doesn't, it, it just doesn't have an earnestness to it. The story that he tells, it's kind of, um, it's a bit odd. It's a bit of a strange story without the fact that it's about aliens or whatever. And the only story that seems to match up for all three of them is the guy whose name I can never pronounce, not Burroughs, not Peniston, the other guy. He just said, look, we saw some lights in the forest and we went after the lights. That's that's what happened. And that was the only element of the story that was similar in all three of them. So really what happened is, I think, they saw lights in the forest. I think all of the bit about the ship is potentially not true at all. I mean, you're obviously wrong because the government wouldn't want you to know. So they're just trying to cover it up. So we're obviously dealing with aliens, but I'll take it. As a, as a valid point, because I've still got the lights to cling to. Theory number six, which is the one you alluded to earlier, that it was a joke by the SAS. So the reason that people believe this is because allegedly in the August before it happened, the SAS were tasked with trying to penetrate the airbase. So they were going to try and sneak in and see how well the Americans were kind of managing the airbase. They parachuted in in the dead of night but didn't realise that the Americans had updated their radar so they were immediately apprehended and apparently it was like a really embarrassing defeat for the SAS who were meant to be like this special ops team. So they decided to get their own back. They would trick the American forces into thinking that some sort of craft had landed in the woods and allegedly they rigged together this machine that had like parachutes, lights, like all this kind of nonsense on it, put it into the forest basically and like brought it through the forest and tricked the Americans. I could see that happening for the sake of bravado. And for the sake of hilarity, like what a funny joke. But then also, does it does it really continue being funny when it's <laughs> when it's all over the news and people are questioning the legitimacy of the government intervention into this situation? Are you then like, uh-oh. This went a bit too far. Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's every anti, there's, there is an issue with this story in that I'm pretty sure guards on the base carry live ammunition and it was a very risky thing to do. Whereas parachuting in, it would have taken a couple of radio calls from the British or for even from the American base. You don't know who ordered the, the training exercise to just go, no, it's okay. It was expected. Well done. Whereas if you're doing it rogue, you're running the risk of getting shot at, I think. So I do understand it. And actually, I don't know what carries more bravado carrying the trick off or claiming to a trick the americans when actually you had nothing to do with it that claim was only made many years later so it didn't happen in the immediacy and i do wonder if that did happen and the sas did that would they be like oh i think we 
this is getting a bit, this is going a bit far. We should probably tell them because I feel like they would. I feel like they would just go, hey, don't worry about it. It was actually just us. It's a little bit like, you know, where, what's, the, what's the rub off like from tricking them for 20 years? Like what is, what's the, what's the enjoyment of that? That the people that probably did the tricking have probably long since moved on from the SAS. Like, do you know what I mean? That seems, yeah. it seems more like it's something that the SS has claimed to just try and get bravado in hindsight rather than it actually being something that they did. There is one more theory. Aliens, obviously. Theory number six is that this actually happened. And the reason that this theory exists is because of a little town called Kecksburg in America. And in 1965, multiple people in the town reported seeing a craft crashing on the outskirts of town. Not only did multiple people see the craft, but multiple people went to investigate and saw a craft that was triangular in shape and covered in what looked like symbols that they described as being like hieroglyphics. Peniston also described his symbols as being like hieroglyphics. And apparently, allegedly, the people of Kecksburg at the time said that there was a big government influx in the area and that the craft was stolen away in the middle of the night. And they believed that it was some sort of extraterrestrial craft. So 20 years before, a similar craft had crash landed somewhere else. Now I'm going to have to be cynical though. Why? Well, is there every chance that Peniston could have read that story? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think it's entirely possible that Peniston could have read that story. It's just, yeah, it's interesting. So what are your, after hearing all the theories, after hearing the story, what do you think happened? I think a good chunk of it probably was exaggerated and added to because all good stories are. However, I do think something happened in the forest. I do think they, I do think a group of soldiers saw lights that they couldn't explain to the point where they had to do an investigation because you have to. Would you believe I agree with you? I think that they definitely saw something in that forest. They saw lights. They believed that those lights were a threat or something extraterrestrial or something they'd never seen before. Do I think they were caused naturally? Yes, I do. Unfortunately, I don't think there is anything extraterrestrial about this story. I'm sorry, please don't come for me, please. (laughs) But I really don't think there was anything extraterrestrial about it. However, I think that... Colonel Holt in particular firmly believed that what he saw was something extraterrestrial and he stuck with that story never changed it to a point where he never progressed in his career because he lost a lot of credibility because of it I don't think they were natural I do think they saw the lights I think we're at a point where we have to accept that aliens exist if we think about our own society in that we've been heading for the stars since the 50s it's inevitable that if there was another civilization somewhere else in the galaxy that they're likely to be ahead of us and they would have the same incentives. Bizarrely, I was thinking about this while we were watching Alien the other night and I was thinking, if there's like infinite universes and infinite possibilities, then there is the distinct possibility that that version of extraterrestrial life exists somewhere. And you know what? I'll take the I'll take the big-headed, big-eyed creatures any day over the xenomorph. Is that what they call it? Oh, did yeah, I get that right? well done. Oh, amazing. Do you think, so, because I, I thought about this too, because we've recently watched Independence Day. Do you think that if the government tomorrow announced, look, there is aliens, they have been visiting the planet, they have been abducting people, etc., etc. Do you think the world would go into like panic mode? Yes. Do you really? Because <laughs> you know, like an Independence Day where they start looting and, and you know, everything, everything just falls apart. And then there's obviously some people who are like, we welcome you. I mean... 
it's slightly different in Independence Day because they're here and visible. So true, that level true. of panic probably wouldn't happen from an announcement. But if you think about the fact, you know, if there's rumours that there's going to be an oil shortage at some point, everybody starts to panic by petrol. Yeah, and actually, if <laughs> and if you equate it back to the beginning of the pandemic, everyone went mad buying toilet paper and pasta. So, yeah, you know, you're probably right. That's a really silly thing to say, actually, considering how people have behaved in general in the last kind of year or so. Do, what would we do? Would we stay put or would we flee? Because I think I'd stay put. I couldn't be bothered. I mean, where would you flee to? This is these aliens that can fly across space. If they want you, they'll get you. I'm not built for fleeing either. I will say that if they're going to come and get me, I'm just going to accept it and move on. As long as they have some form of potato salad, I'm good with it. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find everything you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can... Why are you laughing? What potato salad? Because <laughs> we said it in an episode recently that the way to, the way to abduct me was through food. <laughs> potato salad is so specific. <laughs> if you've got a story that you'd like to submit, you can submit it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you can get access to heaps of extra content. Equally, if you just want to send me some potato salad, I'm cool with that too. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.